Hello, this is Matt Hale with Art Monthly on Resonance Radio 104.4 FM. And today I'm joined in the studio by two people and another person on the phones, which is a total of three. The third person is JJ Charlesworth, and he's been writing for Art Monthly since 1999. And um, we will also be um, talking about a different subject, but starting off with uh, John Jordan and Dan Smith. We're going to be talking about Dan's feature. Now, Dan is a writer and critic and senior lecturer in fine art theory at Chelsea College of Art and Design, and he first wrote for Art Monthly in 2001. And John Jordan is an artist and activist in the direct action movements. He's co-editor of We Are Everywhere, The Irresistible Rise of Global Anti-Capitalism, published by Verso, and he's presently working on a book film, Paths Through Utopias. And I'm going to carry on with him because he's also a founding member of the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination and has written for Art Monthly, particularly on something he did with them at Tate Modern. But that's going to be the subject of the second part of the programme. The first part of the programme is going to start with Dan's feature. It's called New Maps of Heaven. Now, Dan, I've read this a couple of times, and it's it's a very um, rich feature. But basically, the underlying themes are religion... But I'm going to I'm going to say this intro and then you're going to contradict me, which is fine, by the way. I'll, I'll just try and tell you what I got out of it briefly. But, um, you're talking about artists who, as far as I can see, either anthro- almost almost anthropologically deal with um, religion or spirituality in their art, but they're not they're not claiming to be religious or for the art to be religious. But there's also other artists who you mention who possibly are. Opposite to that, and actually are almost like a religious experience, or want art- people to feel like having a religious experience when they when you are in their arts, particularly say someone like Gormley's um, installation, uh, the Steam Room. I'm not sure if that's the right title, but am I roughly right in in summing up crudely your your feature there? Um, it's a it's a fairly accurate description of my feature. It's not crude at all. What I'm interested in here are turns towards looking at religion, thinking about religion and utilising aspects of religiosity and and notions of of thinking about various forms of what we might call spiritual practice. I'm interested in this in terms of historical formations and how artists in particular are retrieving some of those historical formations and through their practices are thinking through kind of knots and problems within the contemporary that are also quite future-orientated. So, yeah, it's very different to artists who are interested in creating experiences that themselves might offer some form of pseudo-religious or some kind of spiritual experience. And I think Gormley is um, guilty of this in some of his kind of installation-based works that he offers, something that people are, are immersed in. And I don't have a problem with people being immersed in spectacular works, and this is something right. you know, I've written about before. Sure. I suppose what I have a problem with is is a particular type of experience or quality that that I think Bill Viola is also guilty of. You know, Bill Viola draws on on the kind of religious imagery, Christian imagery, and so on, and tries to recreate a, a sort of watered down, uh, artificial kind of sublime spiritual experience. So that's absolutely what I'm not interested in. Instead, I'm interested in, in particular artists who are looking at things like the legacies of spiritualism. It's very easy for spiritualism to be seen as a kind of lost 
and marginal history today and for us to lose a sense of its impact and importance within the late 19th century and up until the first decades of the 20th century as well. Right. You mention various examples of, of artists not to like Bourgola. One would be Francis Elise, who's currently showing at Tate Modern. Um, what work do, would you would you give as an example? I mean, you give one I remember particularly about um, moving soil or mass or with masses of people over a hill. How, how would you? How does that fit your your interest? Well, Elise is very interesting because he's not, I suppose, restricted by looking at these more marginal religious activities, but he's looking at kind of very mainstream ideas about faith, religion, and he's looking at um, how the... I suppose he's looking at um, very much the powers that these things might have now within um, kind of mass contexts. So his extraordinary work, When Faith Moves Mountains... Yes deals with both allegory and social reality. It deals with the idea of a kind of miracle, but it performs it in a very material sense. And it incorporates um, not necessarily a disenfranchised population, but certainly one that is outside of the mainstream kind of, uh, I suppose, view or remit of, of most contemporary art. So I think Elise is, is really doing what someone like Gormley or, or, or Ernesto Neto or Bill Viola failed to do. He's providing um, very meaningful encounters with forms of religiosity and spiritual practice, which are also materialist, which are also kind of critical and engaged in social reality, um, yet are, are transformative and have an extraordinary power both on participants and on the viewer. So is, is this, do you think... Um in opposition to the you know, religions, as in Christianity, Quakerism, you know, Muslim religions. I mean, is it? Do you think the artist is is clearly anti those of which you say there is a, a large um, rise or a lot of interest in? It's a very delicate way. I'm wary of how to put it, but I mean, you, I mean, are they? Are, do, these, do these artists actually, particularly, not wish to be Christians, and, however, wish therefore to invent their own other way in which to not be the opposite of religious, which might be highly capitalist and very materialistic. I, I would say that there are kind of historical and social tendencies that mean that the majority of people working in, in the field of contemporary art do not have any form of faith or, or spiritual belief or practice in terms of any form of organised religion. I'm not particularly interested in that, and I'm not particularly interested in whether or not an artist wants to stand against or align themselves with a kind of religious form. So I'm... Yeah, I'm, I'm not so interested in whether or not they're opposed. To but are you say, I know you, you're not interested, but you think they're actually, they're actually, they're not interested either. I don't think they're particularly interested because fine, I don't think fine. they have any, generally speaking, they wouldn't have any faith themselves. And no. so they would be, yeah. automatically be approaching these forms of, of, of practice as a position of an outsider. And as you said, there's this anthropological dimension. Yes. about how these things might be looked at from the outside position. Yeah. So I think, yeah, they're looking at it from a secular position, from an art world that's essentially secular. Right. I mean, like the, the Western art world, as most commonly found in Tate Modern or wherever. Yes, yes. Yeah. And other, other examples, you give, you give further, further people. I mean, um, Ben Judd is one. Um, we illustrate his, his work um, 
I will heal you, which is, <laughs> sounds quite, um, well, uh, egotistical, I suppose <laughs> you could say. Well, yeah. Um, for that work, he sets up essentially a cult in which he invites, um, he, he does this in Colombia, where he, he invites people to join and participate in his cult. But at the same time, he announces that it is a cult and that it's a, it's, it's a fake, it's fraudulent, and he will exploit them. Yet while do, doing this with one hand, with the other hand, he offers them all kinds of promises about what, what this particular religious cult can do. Yeah. So he's, he's staging the tension in a, in, in a very artificial way. But as, a, as an atheist and a materialist, he's constantly finding himself in a situation where he has to try and account for himself in, in terms of positioning this idea of faith and performing this idea of faith. I'm interested in you know the kind of materiality of the of, of kind of spiritual practices and sensing specifically the body and how the body is is very much you know traditionally part of entering a spiritual state and I you know it's interesting that for me a lot of these practices are very much on in an intellectual sphere they you know they're very much around theory and yet actually one of the you know interesting the most spiritual popular practices is probably rave done you know it's trance it's rave it's people really entering that kind of connected space with their bodies and i'm interested why do artists what is the fear that contemporary artists have with that kind of popularizing some kind of religious experience through the body which clearly is something we've been doing for millions and millions of years and still need to do um, well, well, perhaps they're not recognising a need to do so because those spaces do exist. They ex exist within popular culture. They exist within this, um, you know, th th these ritualised spaces that are very accessible and, and, you know, frequently performed in terms of if, if you're talking about, you know, dancing within clubs and in that, that kind of culture. You know, it's mainstream culture. So perhaps artists feel that they don't need to go there. Uh, it's something that Dan Graham looked at some decades ago when, when talking about connections between particularly shaker rituals and the US hardcore scene in, in, in his work Rock My Religion where, you know, he, he's making the same point essentially saying well there are kind of historical connections here about the need to engage in this kind of practice and so perhaps that kind of practice is, is already being dealt with I mean to some extent Judd is interested in kind of embodied practices and some of the work that he did, particularly in Colombia, involved him physically as an embodied subject, having to undergo rituals. And so his experience was one of kind of bodily fear and as well as kind of psychic and mental transformation or the lack of it. But that sort of embodied state is there. And Marcus Coates very much, you know, uses his own embodied subjectivity within his own performances, both as, as a presence to impose upon his audiences um, but also as a kind of image for us to watch this bodily transformation. And if we're to believe his animal spirit transformations, it's bodily. Um, so I think to some extent, um, Judd and Coates are facing that fear a little bit. But I think it's, it's kind of distributed through mainstream culture. It's just not named as such. Mm -hmm. just, just we're nearly up with our time on this uh, subject for the program. Um, just to say, you you do write a, a sentence which I'd love to read out, um, which basically you say within all of these practices, the ones we've been describing, um, not the Viola ones, but the Francis Alisi one, uh, there is a political dimension made possible by the grounding of religiosity, faith, and belief in social reality. And uh, you also say 
These artists draw on our own desire for enchantment, yet create encounters that are reflexive, critical and unstable. I mean, it's, and that word unstable, I think, is quite um, valuable. In like, Their practice seems to be about trying to form some stability out of a, a positions of, of not really knowing where, or tr where stability can be found. But, but that, that kind of notion of, of their practices creating something unstable is perhaps where these practices do oppose um, forms of organized religion, which right. are all about reassurance and stability yeah. and continuity. Um, and where, whereas, you know, here we have a kind of disruption, which is, you know, temporal, might be just at a conceptual level, at a psychic level of ideas, but nevertheless is unsettling. And, yeah, it's that notion of instability that really makes this a kind of critical turn towards right, religiosity right. rather than a conservative one. Thanks so much, Dan. OK, so this is um, Art Monthly on Resonance Radio 104.4 FM, and you're listening to Matt Hale. Um, I'm joined today, as I've already said, um, by John Jordan, Dan Smith and JJ Charlesworth. JJ's on the phone now. He's just joining us. Hello. Basically, we're discussing now an issue which was in Art Monthly in... An earlier magazine, the issue 334, which was a March issue in 2010, where John Jordan wrote a polemic um, on the subject of censorship called On Refusing to Pretend to Do Politics in a Museum. Now, this is actually available on Art Monthly's newly revamped website on the homepage where we have an archival spot and we pick out current issues where our archive is relevant and you'll see how far ahead of everyone we always are. John obviously was months ahead. Um, he wrote about a complicated, well, the starting of what has become a fairly complicated scenario, which was um, a workshop at Tate Modern. Now, John, could you just describe, this is John Jordan, not JJ Charles or JJ, about the workshop at Tate Modern that um, I believe you actually... Okay, well... Uh, I work in a collective that brings artists and actors together called the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination. And we'd been... The Tate had tried to get us to do a workshop. It's a long story, but several times we'd often said, look, we can't do it. The first one was around the crack in the turbine hall floor, and we, it was sponsored by Unilever. And we said they wanted us to do a workshop around human rights. And we said, hmm, looking at Unilever's experience of human rights in Burma, they continue to do business in Burma. We said we weren't going to do it. So then they invited us many months later and said we'll do one independently on the relationship between art and activism and we said great we'll do the workshop and uh, we called the workshop Disobedience Makes History because initially it was going to be part of the 1989 uh, wall collapse uh, anniversaries and the workshop was aiming to look at the role of artists had had historically within uh, social movements and disobedience from Gustav Courbet through to Sylvia Pankhurst and William Morris and also to look at contemporary practices and to make an intervention at the end, so to use some of the contemporary practices to actually do something with the workshop participants. So the Tate were very proud to have it. It was on the front page of their website. And then they sent me an email, not a generic email, that kind of basically said, you know, yeah, we sorted out the tea and coffee, but um, just remember it's important that you cannot do any art and activism against the Tate and its sponsors, but we're very happy for you to have a discussion around the issues. Which was a bit of a red rag to the bull, to be honest. They know our practices. We've been involved in anti-capitalist movements for years. We're involved in disobedience. So basically, we used that email. We projected it onto the wall as the basis of the workshop. Fantastic educational material. It made it very real for the, for the participants there. And we said to the participants, 
are we going to obey this email or are we not going to obey this email? And let's look at the, you know, let's look at disobedience within this. The curator who had written the email was in the room and started to try and sabotage it. That's how it all began. We then got called into a meeting with the Tate uh, head of security, head of visitor services, two extra-curators. They kind of freaked out. Basically said, lay down the law. You know, you will not do anything against our sponsors. And I said, well, <laughs> the workshop's called Disobedience Makes History. We are going to do something against your sponsors. And out of that, they then policed the workshop. Uh, and out of that, basically, they radicalized the students in a way that I'd never been, never would have ever been able to radicalize. So I'd really like to thank the Tate for radicalizing students and really looking at the real issues, which are about the, you know, the way these are liberal, so-called liberal art institutions are actually um, upholding the status quo and leading us all to hell. So the sponsor that has come to rise, come to light out of this is B, is the BP sponsoring the Tate. Um, over 10 years. 20 years now. Is it 20 years now? Sorry, I read it was 10 years. I thought it was longer than that. Um, now, w w with them being the sponsors, th th we now have had protests, which I understand are the activists out of this workshop. Came out of the workshop, yeah. Who were formed. And uh, recently at the Tate Britain Summer Party and the um, Duveen uh, Commission Fiona Banner's sort of party. Which and the celebration of 20 years of the BP. And the celebration of, thank you, of, of the BP sponsorship, which was an interesting thing to do, um, they an action was made within the gallery itself and outside, and um, and then since then, there's been quite a lot of discussion on the internet. Obviously, there was also a, a, a leaflet given out at the same time by another organisation called Platform, wasn't there, John? Yes. C can you? They're not connected, literally. Uh, um, your it's a whole lot of different groups that have come together in, in, in loose networks to, to work on this issue. Um, so, you know, they produced a flyer. I mean, it's a whole different... There's yeah. about four groups. But it seems that that one was almost like a more establishment version. It had, you know, Arts Council officers quoted on it, and it, had, it was quite a kind of uh, conventional, in a sense, but anti-this sponsorship by BP. And, and, I mean, I mean, I mean Platform have been doing a lot of work around... The, what is the key issue here, which is called social license to operate. So they've been doing this for many years. Yeah. And, and which is really saying, you know, it's not really BP that's supporting art here. It's art that's supporting BP, and that's how we should be looking at it. And, you know, art is basically cleaning their logo. It's giving them, it's basically distracting the kind of elite political classes around the real role that these com companies have in terms of social justice and ecological devastation, and basically saying, look, they're, they're supporting art. They're a progressive company. So in a sense, that's and, and it enables them to carry out the work that they do, which is incredibly dirty, bloody work. So image, image cleans them. It's image cleaning. It's, it's, it's art supporting BP, not BP supporting the Tate. And that's what, what Platform have called social license to operate for several years. I'm going to ask JJ to come in now. Um, you've heard John talk for a while now. What, what, what do you think about the last po point he was making, JJ? Um, I think that... Um the problem is that um, cultural institutions um, don't necessarily uh, endorse uh, corporate institutions or businesses simply by accepting um, sponsorship. I think the, the, the problem is that if, if you're suggesting that um, by taking uh, BP sponsorship money, the Tate is somehow licensing or giving some kind of uh, credibility to BP, um, to do things, uh, do the kind of things that it does that are seen by the wider uh, culture and the mainstream as somehow 
uh, unjust or iniquitous or destructive, then um, it, it's kind of slightly blind to the fact that uh, most of us think that these companies are already a bit of a problem anyway. That's to say that it's a kind of very broad, um, I would say, soft anti-capitalist culture um, that we all sort of basically tend to subscribe to. The idea that somehow BP is uh, greenwashing or, or somehow kind of uh, salving its, its uh, public reputation or its public profile by this uh, seems a little bit uh, narrow and perhaps a little bit naive. But why, why do they do it then, John? This is Matt. Well, I mean, I think it's, John. you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's, if you, it's interesting, we, we did a um, Freedom of Information uh, request, several of them, to try and see how much actually money BP gives the Tate, and B the Tate is refusing to, to tell us how much. Uh, it's important to also see that you know BP actually doesn't just sponsor the Tate. Uh, if you look at all the cultural institutions in London, whether it's the Almedia Theatre, the Natural History Museum, the British Museum, uh, you know National Portrait Gallery, they're all funded by Shell or BP. Yes, sir, um, and and the key thing yes. here is not uh, is not. I mean, I think we have to understand this. Is they are giving a space for the elite to meet and to make deals as well. It's not, you know, it's very subtle forms of, it's not traditional advertising. And we all, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're postmodern enough to understand that advertising is not just about putting a brand on something and then going, oh yeah, we're gonna buy BP petrol because it's clean. It's much more, more subtle than that. And some of the freedom of information stuff that just, the only thing that came out of all this work was looking at actually how some emails between the European Commission and BP talking, and BP saying to the European Commissioner around biofuels, have some opera tickets. I know you're a bit busy, we can't meet to discuss biofuels, but why don't we go to the opera together? And that's what it's about. It's going to the opera together, going to the openings together, and making deals. You'll go, JJ. Yeah, I mean, again, that it, it's as if, uh, I mean, John's suggesting that this has never happened. I mean, I think that we have to kind of accept that um, cultural institutions, national cultural institutions, have for a very long time been part of a certain kind of cultural and political elite. And the idea that uh, corporate sponsorship, corporate hospitality, and these kinds of uh, networking scenarios are not part of um, the Tate's uh, brief when it comes to developing corporate sponsorship would, it seems a, a little bit credulous. I mean, the, the fact is that B, uh, you know, the Tate looks for sponsorship income. Um, it, it, in this current climate, it seems that uh, any corporation you turn to um, is likely to have some form of uh, ethical... Uh, problem uh, to be found sooner or later. I mean, if you look, you know, it could be a sportswear brand, and it, it turns out that they're, it turns out that they're using sweatshop labour, or uh, it could be Saatchi and Saatchi, or it could be some kind of advertising company. I mean, uh, more broadly, the, what, what concerns me is that uh, we uh, tend to live in a, a period now where this kind of uh, what I would call, as I say, soft, soft anti-capitalism or a kind of naive anti-capitalism finds problems with pretty much every aspect of contemporary capitalist society, which obviously, you know, some people have a great deal of sympathy with. But in the end, uh, you're talking about a public institution that uh, has to find or does find the majority of its income from earned income. Now, the question uh, to John for me is, well, if we have a situation where public institutions, which are cultural institutions, uh, have a primarily a brief to uh, produce a cultural program, and not essentially political organizations, let's, let's be clear about that. If they have to pass um, every sponsorship acceptance decision they make past whatever happens to be the contemporary consensus or the contemporary mainstream preoccupation with particular ethical behavior, the particular ethical behavior of a uh, this or that corporation, then where, where, where does that institution, um, how does that institution uh, actually find itself able to act? 
but it's that's exactly what. Ironically, I mean, if you know, take an example. There was a um, an open letter written to the Guardian by a number of quite a number of artists uh, and academics and so on recently as part of this whole controversy. And uh, the first signatory of that was Hans Harker, um, deploring uh, the uh, the receipt of uh, Tate of BP sponsorship by the Tate. Now, of course, you know, you one has to have a slightly long memory to remember that Hans Harker was in a an exhibition called When Attitudes Become Form back in 1969, which was, of course, sponsored by the Philip Morris Corporation. Now, I mean, a big tobacco corporation would no longer sponsor a uh, contemporary art show because tobacco sponsorship is seen to be beyond the pale. We have a number of examples historically over the last 20 years whereby it's become increasingly uh, difficult for corporations to sponsor uh, anything. <laughs> Maybe, but, but that's exactly, maybe that's not a bad thing. That's exactly the point. You know, cancer, cancer is no longer sure. cool, JJ. You know, cancer is no longer cool. Oil is no longer cool. You know, oil is leading us You're to... You're talking to cool, no, but right? Now, but, but to be honest, the point about BP is that BP is a very large uh, multinational uh, explorer and extractor and exploiter of oil resources. Okay? Now, um, this is a relatively dirty business. Um, it's not without its risks. And if we're asking ourselves... Uh, reasonably what exactly is going on when BP looks for a national institution to sponsor, uh, such as the Tate, and when the Tate looks for a large corporate to sponsor its program. Now, what exactly is the cultural exchange going on? B BP sponsorship of the Tate is probably no more than £500,000, yeah. which is absolutely tiny compared yeah. to its own profits and the amount of money that Tate gets from it. And it's not about the money. I think this is what we've no. got to keep looking at. No. It's not about the money. In fact, uh, John Servan, head of Greenpeace, wrote to Nicholas Sorota and said, look, we can help you find other money, right? Nick Sorota, you know, basically said, it's not about the money. You know, it's under 500,000, probably under 500,000 pounds that they get. Sorry? You see, the point is that Greenpeace seems to take the moral high ground here, and environmentalists tend to take moral high ground. Well, artists should be taking the moral high ground. Artists have always, you know, for me, art is about creating a vision of a better world, you know, and that might seem outdated, but to have a vision of a better world does not include a world that is destroyed by climate change. And corporations like BP are basically leading us into a world where for our children and our grandchildren, there won't be art on a desert. You know, you're not going to get art in a flooded okay, city. So both, both that, that again is not some kind of uh, some kind of statement of fact. That's your political position. Well, it's right? if it's it is actually climate change is a statement okay. of fact. Climate change is a statement of fact. It's J JJ, <laughs> it, the, the, Tate, the Tate's stated ambition is to demonstrate leadership in response to climate change exactly. in its ethical policy. Exactly. Can, can, what do you think of that? Well, it, I mean, to, to be honest, you know, don't forget that ethical policies uh, pr coming from corporations like BP are the product of a constant uh, negative campaigning and attack. Well, I was sorry, I was reading Tate's ethical policy, not BP's. Ethical Same thing. Sorry, Tate's ethical policy. <laughs> so they're another corporate, I know, but... I mean, the point is that everybody nowadays, when you're a corporate or a large institution, feels they have to have an ethical policy that defends them a kind of, uh, against a kind of uh, absolutist, absolutist or very uh, zealous uh, criticism that is thrown at them from all sides. You have to remember the BP when it rebranded itself at the beginning of the decade. Uh, that was in the aftermath of the Shell-Brent Spa um, uh, controversy, right, which had been raging all through the, the end of the 90s. And the murder of Ken Saruiva. Uh, yes, and, and there's a number of issues where, <laughs> where BP uh, felt very much on the back foot in terms of its uh, public profile. Now, I don't have uh, any, I'm not going to discuss uh, the ins and outs of that, but it's very obvious that BP has spent the last decade trying to uh, soften, 
But, but why, why should the art world assist it? That's, I don't. I don't quite understand why. Why is it the job of artists or the art world to assist BP in doing that? It's it's nothing to do with so art, is it? On, on current, by the looks of current evidence, it doesn't seem like it's doing. A, uh, BP is, is succeeding in this. The point is not that uh, cultural institutions have a responsibility to uh, ethically check and position themselves politically on every, on every particular issue that might come up with any particular organisation. Did you say you didn't think it was? No, I don't think it is. But what, what about it? artists then, JJ? You know, are, are artists simply the style a... consultants of capital? You know, is that, what we, is that what artists should be? The style consultants of capital, and it's not our role, as has been the role of the avant-garde, you know, from Breton to Courbet, whatever, is our role not to actually reshape and transform society in some way. Really, I totally agree with you. Okay, so but yeah. so by by it's not necessarily uh, that's not necessarily not necessarily on the terms that you offer, which is why I keep pointing out that this is a partisan position of yours, right? Climate change, uh, anthropogenic climate change, uh, is um, agreed to be uh, uh, present. Uh, as to how it's dealt with, and how, as to how it's either adapted to, mitigated, or um, or uh, resolved, that's a political and social question. It's not simply about having a bash at... No, but one, if you... It happens to be expedient to do so because they happen to be having a bit of bad publicity because... No, but one of the ways of dealing with climate change, and most many, many top scientists talk about this, many social movements around the world talk about this, is to stop pulling fossil fuels out of the ground. And if you stop, you know, we have to start stopping fossil fuels out of the ground. We have to have a massive shift of culture to enable this to happen. And to have a massive shift of culture, we need artists. Political, you see, you talk about that massive shift in culture, John, but the, the reality is that when you say that, you're assuming that everybody agrees with you, which is to say to ramp back towards uh, a small-scale... A micro-generated renewable energy economy. That's really what you're talking about. I'm talking about decentralized... The agenda is always about pulling back from large scale. Uh, of course fossil fuels are going to run out sooner or later. Of course fossil fuels are not the solution to long-term energy needs uh, for the, the future of uh, global industrial society. The issue, but of course, you know, at the same time, nobody's talking about uh, massively expanding nuclear power because that's off the environmental agenda. So when you say that we have to go beyond fossil fuels, yeah, or beyond hydrocarbons or whatever, I agree with you. But what I, then the question is, well, what is, what is the politics of the agenda which you're proposing uh, as a substitute? And that's a really a political discussion, and it's not simply one that can be easily had by um, throwing slogans around about the babble of the city that surrounds the Tate at the moment. Well, the, the, climate Dan, change, the climate change issue shouldn't be allowed to take too much precedence here in relation to this problem with BP. The, the issue seems more about a, a kind of a, a general difficulty with, with corporate sponsorship. And JJ, as you said earlier, any large corporation is going to have, whether they be skeletons in the closet or bodies on the floor, it's going to have um, things that you won't have to dig too deeply to find problems with in terms of a kind of anti-capitalist position. At the same time, I can't imagine that there are many people at Tate who don't have um, a problem with BP sponsorship, particularly in recent months, and who aren't very, very uncomfortable about it. And so this seems like an opportunity to, to perhaps to try and rethink that relationship in the long term and think, well, okay, if we are going to be dependent on corporate sponsorship, we need to kind of chart something here. We need to come up with, with, with some kind of approach about um, you know, where we draw a line. And at the moment, it seems that there are no lines, that BP's relationship with Tate is, is historically kind of determined, and yet yeah, it's problematic, but there are ways to defend it. That doesn't seem, uh, that doesn't seem sustainable. It, and we mustn't forget that Tate is also a kind of corporate entity that is concerned with its image, with its branding. 
And at the moment, it's going through this, this kind of image disaster. I mean, it, it is going to need to rebrand itself here. I mean, I think, uh, hang on. I think the part, part of the problem there is that uh, the state has uh, not been particularly robust or uh, um, vocal in defending its right to uh, make sponsorship uh, agreements with who it sees fit. I mean, the, the issue here is about the relative independence, cultural political independence, of cultural institutions within a broader society. Uh, it's to do with the fact that culture and art are not simply uh, uh, or directly channels or mouthpieces for, for um, political um, uh, or critical uh, activity. Uh, it's to do with the fact that we do have a, 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 a civil society in which institutions do have the capacity and, and I should think, the right to uh, determine their activities independently of uh, the more kind of histrionic campaigning which uh, these kinds of uh, controversies seem to be based on. But if we were talking about this 200 years ago, you know, I think we may be looking at the slave trade. I think our grandchildren are going to look at oil, fossil fuel extraction as we look at the slave trade as this absolutely absurd, horrendous practice. We could have been having exactly the same, same conversation 200 years ago and you'd have been saying you know, exactly the same things. We've been having this discussion 30 years ago about the tobacco industry. Like I say, you know, the... I'm not, I don't want to get into a relativist point about uh, the fact that, yes, uh, cultural and social attitudes change, right? Of course, um, I think Jonathan Jones pointed out that, you know, he argued that, you know, you should, you should take money from the devil if that's what supports this program, I think, to paraphrase. Now, personally, I don't think that one should take money from the devil, even if he were to exist or not. The point is about it is making uh, independent moral choice about uh, the people who support your program. Right? And that, that, means, uh, that means not simply uh, bowing down or, or giving up in the face of uh, a very partisan and narrow critique of uh, what the old industry is supposed to be. J JJ, when you say your, you said your programme, as in referring to the Tate and, yeah. and saying when they... But it's our programme. I mean, the thing is, the Tate is a public institution. I may have got this point wrong, but it may, what I'm thinking of is, well, what you're saying about is this idea of independence and you can choose who you want to sponsor you, if I got you right. Yeah. But, but, but the, it's, they are us. I mean, they represent and are paid for by... Not, they're not a private institution, that, are they? The, uh, so they can't be able to do what they want. No, uh, with respect, I think that's a slightly... I'm sure it's naive. <laughs> slightly naive. And histrionic. Underdeveloped uh, kind of perspective <laughs> on it. The fact is that, you know, the Tate uh, in, what, 2008 earned £50 million pounds from, unearned income, uh, from earned income, right? Uh, which is the bulk of its uh, earnings. You mean like ticket sales or whatever? Uh, everything. Yeah, I don't. I mean, you know, I was. Just I saw the figure two hundred. Wasn't exactly, million. you know, detailed, but the fact is that they earn quite a bit more unearned than they do from the from the public purse. So the question as to what is the uh, cultural and social and political autonomy of an organisation uh, when it takes money either from the private sector or from the public sector is absolutely key in this discussion. Um, it, it, I would not suggest. I mean, this is an, an issue also for public funding because, of course. The Tate is not independent wholly of the uh, demands of state funding when it comes to cultural policy. All right. So just just as uh, uh, BP expects some kind of reflected uh, kind of glow or, or something like that coming off its association with the with the Tate, uh, so uh, in a different way, the Tate has to uh, has to accept certain kind of requirements on it from state funding when it when it takes public money. But the point is that it is not a state institution in, in the same sense as, as a government department. It has uh, a relative autonomy, uh, autonomy, like many art galleries, 
that uh, take a mixture of private and public funding uh, uh, do. But it's chosen that autonomy, you know, in, w within that autonomy, it's chosen in its very clear policy statement to say it's working towards mitigating climate change. And yet, on the one hand, it says that. On the other hand, it's, uh, it's taking money from BP and cleaning their logo. I think that's it needs to have a clear ethical... That's the point, but then most, most companies nowadays put in their mission statements the mitigation of climate change because it's one of those hot topics. Now, the question is not so much as whether it should be a hot topic or not, John, but whether uh, you allow the Tate to work out how it goes about doing what it says it wants to do, uh, uh, rather than stating rather bluntly that uh, simply because it takes money from an oil giant then somehow that uh, completely negates its commitment to uh, mitigating climate change, if, if indeed that's what it's trying to achieve. So the, the issue here is, is uh, I, I mean, I find it uh, tricky because, you know, I've always, always taken the position that capitalism isn't the greatest system uh, for organizing society on Earth and that we could do better. Uh, at the same time, I find myself increasingly um, uh, reacting against the kind of uh, apocalyptic and uh, histrionic account of uh, uh, climate change uh, that comes from campaigning organizations like Greenpeace who jump on and are very op opportunistic in, uh, jump in jumping on the kind of misfortunes of a corporation like uh, BP at this present moment in order to hammer home a very uh, one-sided, very narrow interpretation of uh, how we should respond to climate change. And so I think that in as much as that is a political debate, and that's a debate that we should all be uh, involved in, not as a consensus, but as something in which people have a very uh, strong difference of opinion for how to proceed and how to respond to that challenge, uh, then we should at least uh, pay, the, uh, pay respect enough to organizations like the Tate to be able to work, uh, their own, work out their own response on their own terms. JJ, one, one aspect which we, which we haven't covered, which I, I, I read something about um, on, a, on a blog by, by a worker from the Tate, who, it was self-censorship, which is the, so the effect of BP being the sponsor of Tate is possibly goes beyond what we've discussed so far, which is actually that people, it affects the artists and the artists that are selected, and it affects the workers to, to actually change the programme of Tate. I mean, you, you've suggested during this programme generally that BP are sort of in a an, an unfortunate situation and that, and that they don't have much benefit from being sponsors of Tate. And I don't really think that's quite true because I think BP are in an absolute calamitous situation and they're also having quite a major effect on what is exhibited at Tate because people don't do things and things don't happen there as radically as they might because they the sponsor is too important for the Tate to allow anyone to step on their toes. Okay, well, so I, they don't do anything. So you'll never know about it. It just won't happen. I'll totally take the, take the point. But I, again, I, I was slightly sort of smiling when John was introducing uh, his uh, in exchange with the Tate with the workshops uh, earlier on because uh, what, who are we kidding? I mean, the fact is that if you enter into an agreement or some kind of contract to provide a service to a, to a client, um, then... Surely part of that business is uh, adhering to the stipulations and conditions that they set. Now, uh, So there are stipulations set about the making of contemporary art? Well, if you... Are there? Uh, so who's going to set those stipulations? <laughs> Your Stalinist bureaucracy yeah, or something? This, we live in a 
the real world. And if you, if you engage with an organisation which is not your own, then you have to negotiate the terms by, uh, of that engagement. Well, as an artist, I refuse to be censored. I, refuse, you know, I think freedom of expression is fairly fundamental to the practice of art. And I think the question here I'm is, do we want to make art for the sake of art, or do we want to make art for the sake of life? And in the end, that comes down to me, to the question of, no, do we pretend to make political art, or do we to make real political art? Do we make political art that actually is engaged in some form of social transformation, or political art which is simply engaged in representation and keeping the status quo going? And that's the you're kind of you're making a slogan out of something which uh, uh, is clearly more tricky. There, there's no issue here with, about freedom of speech or freedom of expression, or the right and the, and the duty or responsibility of, art, of artists, if they see fit, to address these issues through the making of art. The question is not there. The, fact, the question is how artists engage with institutions um, and how institutions engage with each other. But the Tate asked me to do a workshop on art and activism called Disobedience, and then they told me not to critique their sponsors. Well, are you surprised by this, though? No, I'm not surprised. <laughs> so what is the point? What is the issue here? The issue is that most people are shocked by that. I mean, uh, because they imagine the Tate to be this liberal institution that is very engaged in looking at the relationship between art and politics, okay. which is rubbish. So, so in fact, what we, but what we do realise is the Tate is damned if it does and damned if it doesn't. It's damned if it attempts to behave uh, as the disinterested, impartial, uh, liberal, open institution which accommodates radicalism of very sort. Um, and then it's damned if it doesn't, because it's got a slight uh, bee in its bonnet about whether uh, one or other sponsor is going to be offended. Now, the, you know, the, the, the trouble is that if you uh, engage with a cultural institution to uh, produce some form of program, programming which may have some uh, substantial critical content more generally, uh, you are nevertheless going to run in the very, into the very prosaic matter of uh, not offending uh, the policy of the institution. Now, I'm, so, I'm sorry that the Tate took such a uh, pedestrian and sort of uh, weak-willed uh, position on trying to tell you off about whether they, you know, you should or shouldn't critique the sponsors. But the, the, it, the reality of the matter is that they have their, their policy and their criteria. Um, so it's unsurprising that this, uh, that was the outcome. But it is, a, it is a, I agree, a, a serious issue about the contradictory role of public or uh, semi-public institutions in sponsoring and uh, fostering forms of radicalism uh, within, with, within what are relatively conservative, you know, they may be liberal, but they are conservative institutions uh, uh, nevertheless. And this goes back to the, the, the problem and the continuous problem of, of the nature of radicalism within art and its relationship to the public JJ. institution since the 60s. JJ, I'm really sorry. We really appreciate you coming on the programme. We're going to have to finish it very soon. And I'm just going to give one more word to John, and then I'm going to round up the programme. I think in the end it's a question of, you know, what do we want art to do? Toe the line or lead us into a new space? I know which one I want. OK, well, thank you all for coming on the programme. Um, that's Dan Smith, John Jordan and JJ Charlesworth. Um, I hope you've all enjoyed it. <laughs> and I hope we all meet and have a further chat somewhere else, possibly on the radio or on a blog. <laughs> Who knows where? This has been Art Monthly on Resonance 104.4 FM. Remember, you can subscribe cheaply on our website, which has been revamped and has lots of podcasts of all the previous programmes on it as well. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. <laughs>